Okay, welcome back to the program. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord our God, I love you, and I thank you and praise you that you call us into the depths. You call us to a deeper encounter with you. And in this Lenten journey, Lord, you get us there by bringing us out into the desert. So Lord, give us the grace today to say yes to the desert that has our name on it. Give us the grace today to say yes to the particular form of stripping down, cleansing, and severing connections to anything that is holding us back from advancing in our union with you or in completing the mission for which you've created us. Lord our God, I ask that you would give us the grace as well to be formed and molded and shaped in new ways that we would grow in spiritual strength. And so, Lord, as we die to ourselves and as we embrace spiritual disciplines, may we honor you this Lent. Lord Jesus, please give us the grace to have a good right now, a good next hour, a good day today. Lord, help us to be encouraged and help us to be spurred on for even more. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, how's your Lent going? I, I got to tell you, it's, uh, it's a, mine's a mixed bag. And maybe I don't want to say mixed blessings. It's a mixed bag. Because on the one hand, I, I'm seeing that the things I've undertaken for Lent, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, yes, all right, here we go. I'm doing them. On the other hand, <laughs> here's the other hand. Man, I'm looking forward to the little Easter's that happen as part of the Lenten season. Uh, And so you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the wonderful way that I grew up, Sundays or little Easter's, and so we could take a break from our Lenten obligations. Oh, man, I got to tell you, I have become a Pharisee. I have just become a Pharisee because, you see, the Lord's Day is a day of the resurrection, right? And so 40 days of Lent, if you add them up, you know this, Ash Wednesday, and you go to uh, the Easter Vigil, you're not going to get 40 days. You're going to get 46 days. Well, you take out the Sundays, and that's how you get 40. And that means that these Sundays are, in fact, little Easter's. And so we shouldn't be carrying forward our Lenten penances. At least that's some homes. Some homes are like that. That's how I grew up. And so I've introduced that. That's how we raised our kids. And, um, and so my kids, I got to tell you, on the one hand, there's a benefit. And what's the benefit? The benefit is it doesn't feel like, oh, we're never going to see the end of this. This is never going to end. It's, can we just make it until Sunday, right? Can we make it until Sunday? Well, unfortunately, in the current household, we're, we out clever that just Sunday, so on the one hand, we had Carrie's birthday last week. So that was another feast day in the middle. How can we fast? How can we fast when the bridegroom is still with us? <laughs> so we got to, I got to enjoy a cup of coffee. Yes, I did on Thursday, on Wednesday, Thursday? Oh, it, later in the week. It was Thursday. And then sure enough, uh, it was it, that was a nice bridge because I went from Sunday to Thursday to Sunday. Actually, this is kind of the confession. This is a little bit embarrassing. When does Sundays actually begin in the, in the Catholic liturgical uh, perspective? It begins on Saturday evening. Saturday evening, you can go to Mass and it counts on Sunday because the, Lord day, the Lord's Day begins at sundown. So what is 538? 538 was the time of sundown last Saturday. (laughs) So at 5.39, I had a cup of coffee. It's terrible. This is, I I hate to admit this. I hate to admit this, but I, I I don't want to say I collapsed like a house of cards in terms of the, like the fasting and the the acts of self-denial, but I have definitely found that uh, time-bound deadlines tend to make 
what happens after that deadline is reached to be less than Lenten-like. <laughs> so, uh, you know, on a fast day, one of the traditional ways of fasting is you don't eat during the day, you have one meal, and that meal you have at dinner time. And if you're going to have something during the day, you should only be able to drink it through a straw. That's one way of describing it. It's, like it's just something to drink. So um, on, on those days, um, I got to tell you, I'm eating a big dinner. That's, I think, is probably a little bigger than my normal dinner. And one of my kids said in passing, I think we're eating more in this one meal than I would normally eat in three meals. <laughs> so it, it's a real fascinating sort of dynamic that's happening here. And, and here it is. This is the dynamic. Pay attention to it. This is very valuable. You don't realize the attachment that your flesh has to some good, right? That your flesh is your fallen dimension, not your body, the fallen dimension of your human nature. So that could be in the intellect, that could be the will, that could be the imagination, that could be the memory, it could be the emotions, it could be the appetites of the body. But you don't realize the degree to which we are attached to fleshly desires or even to desires that are by themselves good, but if not denied, are going to hold us back from going deeper into the spiritual life. Did you hear what I just said? I'm going to pick out both of those things today and explore them. Both of those things are important. Denying the flesh, those are the fallen dimensions of human desire that we must put to death. That's mortification. Right? That's part of the Lenten journey. Remember, think about your Lent as involving Jesus. Jesus inviting you, come with me into a desert that I've prepared for you. And like Jesus, when he went out into the desert, it was the Holy Spirit that was pushing him, leading him, uh, driving him into the desert. And so the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ is in you and will give you the strength to follow him into that desert that he has prepared for you. And like Christ, you're going to face spiritual battles, but these are things that are going to prepare you for the mission that is in front of you, the mission that is ahead of you. Now, the other, again, the other paradigm for understanding Lent is another journey in the desert, and that's the journey of the uh, Exodus, which is, again, a, a dimension of preparation where they're following the, the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. So the spirit of the Lord is leading them towards the promised land and they must rely on the Lord for their fundamental sustenance in the manna that comes from heaven and eventually the quail because of their stubbornness and the water that comes from the rock. So the Lord is their provider. The Lord is their guide. The Lord is their protector as they moved towards the promised land of good things that God has for them, and they're going to live out their identity as God's people. But they also have to die to their attachments to Egypt. They're dying to those things that are attaching them to their own slavery. Now, let's take a look at those two as it relates to our lives. Let's talk about the dying to self, and then let's talk about the spiritual uh, uh, the spiritual disciplines that will form us. So dying to self and dying to attachments. Okay, I gave you the story of fasting during the day, and I'm going to come to my one meal, and then when I get to that one meal, I end up having a bigger portion than I would. And it and the reason I did so, the reason why that happens was, I mean, I was hungry and I was tired. Okay, fine. But, and, and this is really the key, fasting gave me a gift. Fasting revealed something. Fasting was very revealing. It revealed the pull, the tug, the, the inclination towards food. And there are ways in which that food that I'm drawn towards isn't only about uh, filling the, um, the nutrients that will suffice for my state in life, for the situation that I face in the day. That's not it. 
it's comfort, it's habit. Oh, habit, attachment. There's an attachment there. There's an attachment to eating. Eating because, well, I enjoy it. Eating because, well, I'm bored. Eating, well, because, you know, I just have my bodily constitution uh, uh, has this craving for fill in the blank, sugar, caffeine, carbs, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. And your body starts speaking loudly. It starts moving you towards things. And, and isn't it true, think about it, that you're not even realizing the attachment you have to something until you restrain yourself from freely accessing it. It's then that the, I'm going to call it an addictive pull, an addictive urge, or theologically what is called concupiscence, it's this urge towards this sinful thing, starts to show up. And so I I don't mean to be picking on fasting. I'm going to give another example of this in, in just a few minutes and talk about the same thing that happens when you embrace silence. When you embrace silence, you're going to see, well, likely, especially uh, a generation that has become addicted to screens, right? Smartphones, smart TVs, and all of the above. You're going to experience the, the pull, that, that craving for noise. And there are definite losses when we are walking around unaware of the way in which the cravings of our body leads us to be less spiritually nimble, less spiritually attentive, less spiritually alert, less spiritually vigorous. There are losses. And the losses are that we will not radiate the life and joy and the presence of Christ because our union with Christ will not be as profound, intimate, personal, or life-giving as he intends. I said each of those adjectives intentionally. It's deep. It's profound. It's intimate. It's near. It's personal, and it brings you to life. The Lord has more life for you, and that's why we do Lent. That's why we engage in Lent. We are called to mortify ourselves. It says in Colossians that the followers of Christ have crucified their passions, crucified them. And that vision of growing closer to Christ as involving and entering with him into the cross, part of what we embrace as a cross is dying to self, dying to those dimensions of our lives that are not submitted and surrendered to the Lord, that are not in proper order, that are attached to the things of this world or attached to sin. And so Lent, that's a big part of it. And, you know, I think we have to continue to remind ourselves, I need to remind myself that it hurts to die to self, whether it's just an internal act of the will to say, I'm going to press through this, you know, this Lenten penance, this cold shower, this uh, uh, additional time of prayer, this additional fasting and giving stuff up. It is meant to hurt. I mean, it's meant to bring about a death to self, dying to self. And when, when I was laughing at the very beginning of the program about how's your Lent going, and I'm like, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I'm tired of going without coffee. <laughs> I'm tired of it. And I was saying to Carrie, it's like, it's just Monday. Like, I was so grateful for yesterday where I got to, um, I got to have some coffee on Sunday. And I, I don't know, I think I had two cups. It wasn't like I had a whole bunch, but crazy thing of it all was... Um, now I'm back on Monday and there's no holidays this week. It's, it's, uh, it's Lent all week this week. Nothing special for me. And so, uh, come on St. Patrick's Day. I need a feast. All right. 
When we come back, I'm going to talk a bit about the other side of the path of the desert, not just dying to self-mortification, but also asceticism or spiritual training. Welcome back to the program. So today I, I mentioned a bit about how's my Lent going, and I'm using an update, and I'm using the theme of mortification and asceticism, dying to self and spiritual disciplines, embracing spiritual disciplines as a way of kind of measuring how things are going. And the dying to self is so good, brothers and sisters. It, it's good. It's good to feel it in Lent because that means that these attachments are being exposed. They're being exposed to the light. And then we can make a decision. How do I want to live? Do I want to continue to live in accord with meeting the, the, the cravings of the flesh? Or is there something better? Is there something deeper? Is there something more alive and life-giving for me? And, and that brings me to the second part of this is, do you want to be useful to the Lord? Don't you want to be useful to the Lord in growing uh, to be salt, light, and leaven in the world? How many people are just hurting out there and lost, struggling? And if we who have been blessed with faith are not going to be quick to share our faith, quick to... Um, have an expectant faith that the Lord wants to to move in special and anointed ways, then um, then who will? Who will? It, it's part of our stewardship. It's part of what Lent is about, is this spiritual training in order to be more spiritually uh, empowered and alert, uh, in order to be useful to, to Christ in this moment in history and proclaiming the gospel. Okay, this is where I want to talk about a spiritual discipline that is fundamental and beautiful for living our life of faith. I was just going to not say something. It's silence. <laughs> it's silence. Remember now, Mortification and asceticism, those are the two parts. I'll go further into those two parts of the, the reality of Lent, but for the moment, asceticism is spiritual training. And if there is a discipline that has diminished in, in the last 15 years, since the invention of the smartphone and the rise of the technologies that support it, it's silence. And there are serious losses that come to our life of faith when silence disappears. So I'm going to connect silence to reverence and to obedience. And I mentioned that I have a scripture reading that I want to use to unfold the dynamics of being a disciple, aspects of God's call, talk about the aspects of God's call, leaning on the first reading from Sunday. And there are just a number of aspects of God's call that will show up, um, I think, in a way that will really feed your soul. But in order to do that, well, we're going to need some silence. And you'll see why when we dive into that passage. But first of all, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time on the fact that contemporary human beings, especially young people, anyone that has that smartphone as part of their lives, is going to be hedging away from the experience of silence. In fact, the experience of silence itself can be rather intimidating. It can be uh, something that's very uncomfortable, and it can make people very edgy. Uh, and, and it's like, okay, wh wh where's my phone? So that's one of the great, again, you talk about a revelation, uh, something that, get, that will reveal something, and, and that would be this. If you were to take some time in prayer and sat in silence, how long would it be 
before you became conscious that your phone wasn't near you or your phone wasn't uh, notifying you of something. That Remember that craving, that itch, right? That little dopamine hit, right? That the... Uh, the the inter, uh, the internal uh, horm- uh, uh, hormone that gets released that that dopamine and it's not that this hormone isn't important but it can have really um, it can have impacts on us where if we are accustomed to using that phone uh, that smartphone as a screen to stimulate us it's going to have us living outside ourselves in this digital world in a way that is stimulating a physiological reaction. And you see it, right? This, this, this isn't the, the point of my sharing because we, we get this, but what we want in Lent is to rely less on it, reveal the, the attachment that is there and see if we can diminish the attachment that's there. So I mentioned to you that I deleted the YouTube app, and I am not using the phone to access the internet, only in the rarest of circumstances because I spend a lot of time on computers because of my real estate work. And, you know, so it's contacting people and looking up houses and getting on the uh, MLS, the multiple listing service, to do research on homes and preparing for meetings and, and, uh, you know, putting all this stuff together. There's a lot of time I'm spending on computers already, but when I don't have the freedom to click off of my work to access a chess game, that would have probably been my number one activity, or number two, go look at ESPN.com to see what's going on in sports or go to the favorite news uh, uh, page and see what's happening there. When those things are not an option, well, all of a sudden, the craving comes. And the craving comes. And the craving is for that stimulation. And, and, and that runs counter to silence. That runs counter to be still and know that I am God. That It runs counter to that spirit of stillness, of silence. Now, I made a case that silence is critical if we're going to foster Oh, there are real losses. And and silence is critical if we want to foster a deeper sense of reverence. Reverence. Reverence is a spiritual, it is one of those, um, one of those uh, gifts that is given, one of the sevenfold gifts given at baptism and increased at confirmation. Reverence is a sensitivity to the divine. And it manifests itself as a sense of being in awe and wonder of who God is. I have a sense that God is God and I am not. I have a sense that God is all and I am nothing. You remember the, the quote that God said to St. Catherine of Siena, the, or Jesus, I am he who is and you are she who is not. Um, when there's a sense of reverence when there's a sense of uh, the spirit of reverence is alive. We have a sensitivity, an awareness, a consciousness of holiness, of the quality of divinity, of God and godliness. And when we lack that, when we lack that spirit, a robust spirit of reverence, faith diminishes. Our living faith in Jesus Christ, our vibrant faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our, our sense that Jesus Christ is our personal Lord and Savior, a sense that he is near to me in an intimate way, he's beyond me in a profound way, he is with me in a way that brings me to life, all of that is connected to reverence. Because he's God and I'm not. In the Gospel of John, in the, gar- in, the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the guards come to arrest Jesus with the, uh, the temple guards. Who you, whom do you seek? Jesus the Nazarene. 
I am he. Jesus speaks that, and they take a step back and fall to the ground. Boom! The presence of God made manifest. Revelation chapter 1, John is elevated into the heavenlies, has a vision of the heavens, and we'll get back to that vision in a bit, but he turns to see who it is that speaks to him, and behold, he sees Jesus, the risen, glorified Lord Jesus, and he falls down on his face as though dead. It's like his very, the, the very life within him has emptied out of him. Now, when we walk into church, when we come to Mass, are we reverent? Is there a sensitivity to the quality of divinity in that consecrated space? Is there an awareness of the holy God and of the holiness of the glorified Lord Jesus present in that space, in that sacred space where a sacred ritual established by Christ himself will occur in, in which he will become present. Do we believe that, that that's what happens at Mass? That the living, glorified Lord, Jesus Christ, is present and is the primary actor at Mass, present in the assembly that gathers in the community, present in the word that is proclaimed, present in the priest who presides, and present, most profoundly of all, as Eucharist. The proper response to coming into the presence of holiness and of the holy God is reverence. It's being in awe and in wonder. And I will be bold and say that one of the largest factors contributing to the bleeding out of young people from church today, the loss of the practice of the Catholic faith of so many Catholics today, is a lack of reverence. There's a lack of reverence among us. There's a lack of reverence called forth and asked of us. And sadly, there's even a lack of reverence in some of the elements, so some of the elements that are part and parcel of how the sacred liturgy, this holy work of God, this holy work, is celebrated. So I, I share this with you, and I share it with you humbly and honestly, but I also share it boldly because I want your kids, I'm desperate for your kids and grandkids to remain Catholic, return to the Catholic faith, and find in the practice of their Catholic faith a living connection with the Holy God. I am desperate to do what I can to help your kids and grandkids and you yourself come when you come to Mass to have a sense of an authentic, profound encounter with the Holy God. And that, that means reverence. That means reverence. By the way, I'm going to tie this back to silence. I'm not done. I'm going to tie this back to silence. I'm going to get there. But let me give you some examples. I know this because I've seen a return to reverence in my kids. I've seen it. And I, where we discovered a, a mass that was fundamentally marked by a call towards reverence, evoking from us the spirit of reverence, was the traditional Latin mass. And so 
it, when you go to the traditional Latin Mass, you'll see that the identity of our faith, our Catholic faith, is lived. But it's lived in a way that calls forth from the people who are there a sense of reverence if you are to participate well. It's everything from the expectation and culture, that, like in the spirit that's in the air, the atmosphere, and the expectation around how you dress, how you comport yourself. So when you enter the church, you're silent. And as long as you're present in the church, you're silent. And you, you, the genuflection, the expectation, the, 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 the fostering of a spirit of pray before Mass begins. Get there in time to be able to properly prepare yourself to be able to enter into this sacred liturgy with the sentiments of reverent faith, hope, and love, with, with a sense of reverent uh, participation and, and how you're being present. And then the manner in which you come forward to receive Holy Communion, kneeling and at the altar rail from the hands of a priest, that highlights something, right? Uh, the, the, the beautiful principle in Catholic, the, uh, the Catholic um, liturgical life, um, uh, lex uh, orandi, lex credendi, that the law of prayer is the law of belief. The way that we believe is going to manifest itself in the way we pray, and the way that we pray is going to foster a certain way of believing. And so to make a point of it, whom are we receiving when we receive Holy Communion? We're receiving Jesus Christ, the living Lord Jesus Christ. It's an encounter with the living God that caused John in the high heavens, in ecstasy, to fall down as though dead. And when we come forward to receive Holy Communion, the very architecture of the church and the very posture that is asked of us fosters this sense of heaven and earth are meeting. Heaven is touching earth. Earth has been drawn into heaven. And so that sanctuary is cut off from the assembly, from the, the main body of the church. You have the assembly cut off. And those who enter the, the sanctuary are veiled. They're veiled in the robes of the priestly garments because they are now submitting their personality to the role that is theirs as an ordained priest conformed to Christ, even at the very level of the depths of their being, and now are usable by Christ, the high priest who's the primary actor in the liturgy. And the manner of, uh, the manner of presiding at that liturgy itself is evocative of the spirit of reverence. Now, none of this is guaranteed, right? It's not magic. It's not check all the boxes and it's guaranteed to happen. But let me tell you, I raised my kids going to Mass in English, the Novus Ordo Mass, and my family still goes to Novus Ordo Mass on Sundays, typically. I go to Latin Mass. I go to the traditional Latin Mass during the week. Our family goes to Mass in English typically now on Sundays. Um, but you know what's happened? Is that they have brought all that they've inherited from being immersed in the traditional Latin Mass. They bring that with them to Mass in English, to the Novus Ordo. And it's summed up in one word, reverence. They still dress the way they dress. We still get there early. They still pray before Mass. They pray after Mass. They're not looking around and talking to other people. They, uh, and when they go forward for communion, they will receive from the priest on the tongue. And even now, one of my kids kneeling. Um, and that's become a custom. There's a custom over here that's emerging and growing, which is even when you're in line to receive communion, uh, you can kneel down to receive Holy Communion. And I, I applaud it from the standpoint of 
if this is an expression of devotion and of uh, acknowledgement that it's the Holy Lord of all history, the risen Jesus Christ who's glorified, who's entering into me, I want to maximally display internally and let that conform externally to the one I'm receiving. And so reverence, reverence is an antidote to casual, to casual. And sadly, it's the casual celebration of the Mass by casual participants at Mass. And I'll just leave it there. That leads to a faith uh, in the Mass, a faith of what's happening at Mass, that it just can't be that important. It really just can't be that important if this is how you dress, this is when you show up, this is how you're behaving, and this is how you're receiving what you're receiving and when you receive Holy Communion. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're going to Mass in English and there are casual people around you and you go forward to receive Communion and you receive from a Eucharistic minister in the hands that you are not reverent. I'm not saying that. Please, don't write a letter and call the station. (laughs) All right? If you're able to do that, praise be to God. But you must know that there's a large body of Catholics who are not having sentiments of reverence fostered in them. And their faith diminishes down, down to the point where they just no longer go to Mass. All right, I'm up against a break. I want to come back. I'm going to connect this to the reality of silence. Back in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. So I so desire my kids to live their faith as Catholics throughout the rest of their lives and to fulfill their vocation if they're called to be married, to be able to marry someone who has a uh, a similar faith that is vibrant and alive, that has a desire to please the Lord and to live their lives as profoundly as they can as Catholic Christian disciples of Jesus. That's what I want. I do. I pray for it, and I will sacrifice for it. I will do what I need to do to help foster in my kids the dispositions and the virtues and the spiritual disciplines to lay the groundwork, to set the good foundation. And one of the most important things that we can do with our kids is to be able to help them flourish at Mass, to be able to help them find faith, live faith, express faith, and grow in faith by their attendance at Mass. And that's not the default setting, folks, for teenagers, teenage Catholics going to Mass today. That's not the default. The default is that they are losing their faith and walking away from their faith at a rate of almost 9 out of 10. I just, I just cringe when I say that number out loud. By the time that these sweet teenagers who are even attending church right now reach 25, 9 out of 10, and no longer practicing their faith. That's why you have dioceses and archdioceses across the country putting together um, some marketing plans that are letting you know why we have to close down a whole bunch of churches, because people have stopped practicing the faith. And that faith that has been practiced has not been vibrant enough to foster vocations. And so priests are getting older and fewer and have less energy and less capacity to cover more parishes. And so you're going to have to consolidate and close parishes down. And, and here's the thing. You can do that, and all of a sudden you'll have you know, the, the, few, the few from each that remain in a more crowded place, but you're not touching the problem. You're not getting at the cause. right? The effect that's there is being addressed, but not the cause. The cause is we need holy, holiness, and reverence. We need vibrance, vibrancy. 
And so if you take a look at parishes where there is that sense of vibrancy, it's so often connected to a fostering a sense of reverence, and especially reverence for Jesus Christ and the Eucharist. Let me say it again. Do you want your kids to grow in faith as Catholics, to live their lives as Catholics, to be able to express and extend their Catholic faith? Please do not diminish, forget, or overlook the power and importance of Eucharistic adoration, of time spent with the Lord in adoration. Adoration, almost without exception, is going to mean silence. And silence is going to be a key to unlocking an awareness and a sensitivity to the real and true presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, present as Eucharist. He is there. He is there. And so silence will mean silence both outside of Mass and even outside of adoration. Silence in the home, silence in times of prayer. And then building off of that, times of adoration in silence, and then being able to come to Mass, bringing the spirit of reverential silence, awe, and wonder before the Lord. That's one of the most important keys to our current crisis in the church. I know it's a bold claim, but it's one that I know I experienced in my own life, and it's something that I'm battling to recover. Isn't that interesting? That the phone, the busyness of daily life, the ease with which media gets in the way can crowd out silence. And so this Lent, I've been making efforts and hopefully battling that that spiritual battle that's part of Lent to give more time to silence. As my very holy spiritual director, philosophy professor from way back in the mid-1980s, Father Mark Noonan said, in silence, presence is made manifest. In silence, presence comes out into the open. And so if we want to be aware have a a sense of conscious contact with the presence of the Lord in the Eucharist, present as Eucharist. It's when we are in silence and we're still, not just physically still, not just not making noise, not just in an environment that doesn't have noise, but interiorly have become silent in our hearts, that we will become more aware of the presence of the Lord in silence presence is made manifest. Back in a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Hey, welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today. All right, I promised you a text from Genesis chapter 12. It's uh, Sunday's first reading. And it's the call of Abram. And I mentioned to you that there's a linkage between silence, reverence, and obedience. Silence, reverence, and obedience. And if we are going to bear fruit as Christ's church in this world, and if I and you individually are going to bear fruit as disciples of Jesus, living out our God-given call to become saints, to be holy, 
and to fulfill our God-given mission, whatever that means for you and for me, by the lives that we live, we can trace it back to silence, the silent time of encounter with the Lord in prayer, and especially in adoration, that will prepare us, that will dispose us and ready us for an encounter with the Lord in communion. Now, it's not just about the act of receiving communion reverently. It's about communing with the Holy God and being transformed by Him in the core of our being. In Revelation 3, 19 and 20, it says that, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and I will commune with him. I will have supper with him. I want you to think about receiving communion like the knock of Jesus on the door of your life. He is like physically coming to dwell in the core of your being, in the act of being consumable as communion. But he's there to communicate. He's there to speak to you. And in speaking to you, he's asking you to take an action. Let's go to Genesis 12, and let's see if we can trace out some of what the action of the Lord will look like when we honor him in our prayer. So remember now, this is the call of Abram, Abraham, right? But this is before Abraham gets his new name as a result of his obedience to the Lord. And it starts Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram. Okay, and I know that's simple. The Lord said to Abram, we see those all over the scriptures, but think about it. Who is it that's speaking? It's the God of the universe, the creator of all. And this God, who's infinite and eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, takes the initiative and speaks to Abram. It doesn't say the Lord created the world and hoped that people would recognize him in the beauty of his creation. That's not what this passage says. It says things like that elsewhere. But this passage is laser beam focused. It's an event. It's a breaking in. It's personal. It's, it's a destined message for a specific individual. The Lord said to anyone who would listen. No, the Lord said to Abram. So please, brothers and sisters, hear this. The Lord spoke to Abram, this infinite God who is eternal and perfectly happy all as God, still in the mystery of his plan, out of the pure goodness that he is, speaks to you. Today, 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 God will speak to you. Today, the Lord will communicate to you. Today, the Lord is going to take an initiative and communicate to you. This was a communication to Abram, to a person, a specific person, and has a specific plan. Now, let's go further. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from the land of your kinsfolk and from your father's house. Okay, where's that? That's home. That's the place that is known, the land of your kinsfolk and from your father's house, <clears throat> that's your home country. That's where you're comfortable. That's where you know and are known. That's where things are familiar. That's where things are all well established. And what does the Lord say? Go forth from. He's stretching him. He's asking him to take an action, not, hey, think about it. He's saying, take the action. Go. Move. And there's a, a powerful lesson for us today that Lent as a season is about us being willing to leave behind what's familiar, comfortable, and known, but is settling for less than God's best. That place where when you're just at home, you can kick off your shoes, you just relax, you let your guard down. Ah, no, the Lord's like, you gotta, you got to leave that space. you got to move out. Go forth from that place to go forth from the land of your kinsfolk from your father's house to uh, land flowing with milk and honey. No, that's not what it says first. <clears throat> it says to a land that I will show you. He doesn't say, go forth from your current town and go 30 miles down the street or 300 miles across the desert. 
and across the river. And, and that's where I want you to establish the, uh, my people. That's the place I want you to go. No, there is a fundamental act of trust, a radical act of trust, the trust to uproot, the trust to go forth, and the trust to say, I don't even know where I'm going to end up. But you know what? I know who's leading me. That's really hard. They'll, he'll show me. He didn't tell me when he'll show me. He didn't tell me how he'll show me. But he will. He will show me. And I will know when the time is right where I'm supposed to be. And and you know what? It's probably better that way because if we knew we were where the Lord was calling us, would we even go? That was something that Mother Teresa said, Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta, that if she had known or had seen and been told, here's what you're going to live. Here's where you're going to end up and how you're going to live. Way back when, when she heard the call, if the Lord had shown her all of that, she may not have gone. It, it would have been too overwhelming. And so there's a fundamental act of trust in going further and deeper in what the Lord has for us. And then the next sentence, the Lord says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I am not going to have time to dig into all of this today, but look what happens when we're willing to obey the Lord, go forth from those comfortable places, and trust that he'll bring us to the place where we ought to be. Something great will emerge. It'll be a blessing. He didn't say it'll be easy. He said it'll be a blessing. And, and that concept of magnificence that is manifest here, a great nation, a name great, so great that you will be a blessing. Not just that you'll be blessed, but that you're going to be a source of blessing to others. Isn't that the, do you want that kind of life? Do you want that kind of life where the life that you live is not only a life that's blessed by God, but as a conduit of blessing to others? I think so. I think you want that. And I want that. Well, you know what that's going to take? Leaving behind the comfortable, the familiar, the place we know, the place that we call home now, and be willing to be stretched, uprooted, and be led to a place that wasn't part of our plan. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. You're going to be withstood. You're going to find opposition. All the communities of the earth shall find blessing in you so that your obedience impacts me and my obedience impacts you. And the last thing I'll say is that Abram went as the Lord directed him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. And it shows fundamentally he didn't just trust, he obeyed. He went as the Lord directed him. He didn't question he didn't ponder. He, he, I mean, he didn't delay. He went. And he was able to take his family with him. And he was 75 years old. He would, it would have been easy for him to just conclude, I'm too old. I'm disqualified. There's no way I can do this. But he didn't. He didn't see his limitations. He saw the power of the one who called him. My brothers and sisters, this will come to us in silence. This will come to us in silence before the Lord in adoration. This will come to us from the Lord who, who dwells in us in communion. And this will make us a blessing for the rest of the church. That's the path we have to walk today. God bless your day. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.